There is a question that I get very often. I talk a lot about trust and uh, the eight laws of trust. What makes a person trusted? How do you form habits that, that build trust? How do you help others form habits that build trust? But I get this question, what is trust really? And so in this episode, I'm, I'm going to answer that question. What is trust? I'm actually going to answer the question, why do we trust? It's going to be a little more philosophical. It's going to provide my perspective because I didn't find a lot in dictionary definitions and I tried to consolidate a lot of the previous definitions made of trust in research. Welcome to The Trust Show. I'm Yoram Solomon, your host, the author of The Book of Trust and facilitator of The Trust Habits Workshop. My mission is simple. I want to help you form habits that build your trustworthiness because the answer to this question will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? So I think the, the highest level, I can say that why do we trust? We trust because we need to get a reward. We want to get a reward while feeling safe. And those are two very key points that I'm going to uh, unpack in, in this episode. So here are a few things that are related here, and I'll talk about each one of them. Trust is about a reward, Trust is about risk. More than risk, trust is about fear of that risk. Trust is about feeling safe versus feeling danger. Trust is about giving control. And trust is about choice. Let's start. So the reason you trust someone is because you're afraid of a certain risk that you may be willing to take. And the reason that you're taking that risk is because there is a reward. I mean, you're not just taking risks if there is no reward at the end, right? But, but we all know the, the phrase, no risk, no reward. So typically for the biggest rewards, most rewards, they don't come without risks. In order to get something, get the reward that you are seeking, you may have to take some risks. Let, let's take a few examples. Uh, the stock market. The stock market, uh, you know, there are different types of investments. Uh, there are what's uh, called, uh, I, I'm not going to call anything risk-free, even though some of them are referred to as risk-free. So, for example, certificates of deposit or, or CDs, uh, maybe U.S. government bonds, uh, things that are FDIC insured. First of all, there is a limitation to the uh, FDIC insurance. I, I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, so there is a risk if you invest more than what's covered, which I believe is about is up to $250,000 per account per person. Uh, the uh, other thing is uh, what happens if the Federal Reserve Bank uh, fails, if the federal government fails and it can't even pay the FDIC insurance that they gave you. Uh, just like an insurance company can fail, uh, even though you have insurance from them, they're not going to cover uh, what happened to you. 
But again, I'm, I'm getting a little too deep here. Uh, the stock market, there are investments that are very, very risky. Investment, for example, in a single stock, in an over-the-counter stock. Uh, I remember when the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic started, uh, there was a stock called Zoom, Z-O-O-M. That stock shot through the roof. I remember that looking at it in, in the first month, I think uh, I think it was since the end of January of 2020 until some like March uh, that year, just over a month, that stock, if you had put like $10,000 in that stock, it would have gone up to $1.5 million. Now we can, all, we can all understand because it's Zoom, because everything went to Zoom. Well, the funny thing is that Zoom, Z-O-O-M, the ticker Z-O-O-M, was not the company making Zoom the product that everybody used. It was actually an over-the-counter uh, stock uh, that at some point they stopped trading it because people were confused and they thought they invest in Zoom. Uh, Bitcoin. How about investing in Bitcoin? I mean, uh, today I think they're, they're about uh, $20,000, but tomorrow they can be $3. There are things that are very, very risky. But when you invest in something in a stock that is risky, the flip side is that it has a much higher reward or potential reward if you're successful than if you invest in something solid like uh, government bonds, U.S. government bonds, or something that's FDIC insured. Uh, starting a startup company. I've done that. The reward there, if you're successful, wouldn't you want to be one of the people who started Apple or, heck, even Zoom or Facebook or Google? Be there on the first day when there was a much, much higher probability of failure than success? There was a risk that you're going to lose everything you have. There's a risk that you're going to find yourself without income. Uh, but the reward is huge. You think about the early investors in, in those companies. How about riding a motorcycle? How about flying a plane? Why do you do that? You do that because you need to get from point A to point B. And I'm not talking about flying on an airline plane. I'm talking about flying a plane as a pilot. Uh, there are risks, but you have to take that risk if you want to get the reward. Now, here's an important part about risk. And I'll talk about that several times during this show. Risk is objective. It's not subjective. You lose $1,000, that's an objective statement. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how much you care. The risk is objective. Now, it, why do we call it a risk? Because there are negative potential negative consequences. Uh, you don't call it a risk if, if there are no potential negative consequences. If they're obvious or, or uh, determined or, or uh, if those negative consequences are guaranteed, it's not risk, it's just downside. It's just this is going to happen, period. We're all going to die at some point. The question is, is it going to happen today? Are you willing to take a risk of dying today and not, you know, 20, 30, 60 years from now. That's the risk. Because there are potential, not guaranteed, negative consequences. And the reason you're taking the risk is because there is a reward. The 
but you know you, you don't trust people because of the risk risk or trust does not compensate for risk trust compensates for fear and fear is different than risk see risk is objective i just talked about that fear is subjective Risk is what will really happen or what would potentially happen, the negative consequences that are potential. And that's true for everyone, and it's the same level. Losing $1,000 is losing $1,000, whether I do it, you do it, anybody else. The risk is the same. Fear is how much you're afraid of that negative consequences, if, if that negative consequence uh, materializes. Remember that that I always talk about trust being relative, which, by the way, was uh, the, the, the title of my last TED Talk was the relativity of trust. Trust is relative. And that's one of the reasons that's or, or that's one of the reasons why I say that trust is relative, because when we trust, we compensate for fear and fear is relative. Different people will require different levels of trust to compensate for the same objective risk. And that's because they translate it into fear differently. Going on roller coasters. Do you like going on roller coasters? I know at least one of my daughters, uh, my older daughter, Maya, she loves going on roller coasters. I can't. I'm afraid of it. Now, the risk is the same. And... Let's at least agree that hardly ever anything comes out of it. Doesn't matter. My translation of the risk on, on a roller coaster is different than Maya's. It's not also the, the difference between the reward that I see from going there versus the reward that she sees, which are probably different as well. She enjoys it more than, well, obviously more than I do. But it's the translation of that objective risk into fear that makes me be more afraid of roller coasters. Getting on a plane, there are people, and there was a period in my life, I have to admit it, that I was afraid on going on planes, not as a pilot. In fact, the reason I got a pilot's license was to overcome that fear of getting on a plane. Getting on planes is a significant part of my job today and, and jobs that I had in the past. But uh, some people are more afraid. Some people are less afraid. The risk is the same. It's a matter of fear. Losing $20. Okay, so there is an investment or whatever uh, that you can lose $20. Let's make it $1,000. Lose $1,000. How much are you afraid of losing $1,000? Well, I can't answer that without knowing how much you have in the bank. And by the way, even people that have the same amount in the bank, let's say if you have... If, if those $1,000 are everything that you have to your name, losing $1,000 is probably, you're afraid of that a lot more than you, you would have been if you had a million dollars in the bank. And this represents 0.1% of what you own. But you know what? Even if you have a million dollars in the bank and I have a million dollars in the bank, we may still look differently at losing that $1,000. One of us may be more afraid than the other, even though we have the same uh, objective uh, amount in the bank. So it's really uh, oh another another aspect of how we translate risk into fear is our interpretation or or even comprehension of the risk. Some people just don't understand what the real risk is. So 
you know, they're afraid of something, but they don't know what it really is. Some people may consider the risk to be more than what others do, and some may consider it less. So it's really, they don't even interpret the risk correctly. Or I'm sure that we all don't interpret the risk exactly the same way as somebody else. So even before we translate into fear, it's just our understanding, our comprehension, our interpretation of that risk that, that starts to affect how much we're going to be afraid of it. And finally, it's it's the overall attitude towards risk. Am I a risk taker? Some people are, are more risk takers. And, and I'm going to talk more about that towards the end. So if we're afraid of something, if we're afraid of uh, our interpretation of the negative, the potential negative consequences that are really that risk that we're taking. How are we still taking it? Well, this is where trust comes in. Trust compensates fear. And the people I trust, and I'll talk a little more about that uh, later, that that could be myself. I trust myself that I'm not going to that I'm going to be able to avoid the negative consequences. Maybe I trust somebody else. Maybe I trust something. Maybe I trust God. Enough to compensate for that fear. And and the relationship is, is simple. If I have more trust in something, someone, than the fear that I feel from the negative consequences of the objective risk, I feel safe. It's less likely, uh, what what it means when I say I feel safe is that I feel that it's less likely than the risk materializes, than the reward materializes. And, And therefore, I'm less worried about that risk because I know that whether it's myself, something, someone, or God will be good enough to eliminate, to to prevent those negative consequences. The flip side is, if the trust that I have in something, someone, God, or myself is lower than the amount of fear that I feel, then I feel danger. We all want to feel safe. We don't want, we try to avoid feeling danger, that we're in danger. And because of that, we need to trust more than we feel fear. So that brings the question, what about people who love living dangerously? You know, the risk takers, the adrenaline junkies. It's not that that their interpretation of risk is necessarily flawed. It's just that their translation into risk into of risk into fear is not as much as mine or somebody else. So in other words, we feel that they're taking more risks, but they still feel safe. They feel safe because they need a smaller amount of trust, whether it's in themselves, somebody else, God, or something else. And, and a lower amount of trust is, is all they need to compensate for the lower fear that they have because of how they translate that risk. But even risk junkies, adrenaline junkies, they still need to feel safe. It's just that their translation of risk into fear is lower. Now, here's, here's an important thing about what is it 
that I mean when I say we trust, because trust is really a verb. So what does it mean? I trust. I trust you. I trust someone. What I really do is I give control. I, I give control over something that I have to the other person. Now, if, if I keep control myself because I trust myself, uh, we can look at it two ways. One is that I give control to myself. I allow myself to do something. Or I can look at it as I'm not giving control to somebody else because if I give it to somebody else, then I, I don't feel safe because I trust them less than enough to compensate for the fear that I have of the potential negative consequences. See, as I'm going through this, you're starting to get what my definition is. And by the way, I promise the last thing I'm going to do in today's episode is I'm going to give you the definition word for word, my definition for trust. So giving control over something else, this could be giving control over $20. If I lend you $20 um, and uh you know, it's it's interesting. I'm I'm going to have to touch on that. I, I typically in my workshops when I describe the first law of trust. The first, my first law of trust is that trust is continuous. It's not binary. Uh, it's not that I trust or I don't trust, even though this is typically how we use the word trust in a sentence. Uh, it's not that I trust or I don't trust. It's a matter of how much do I trust. So typically it's I trust or I don't trust relative to a certain uh, bar, if if you will, which, by the way, is once again why I say the trust is relative. So in my workshops, when, when I explain the first law of trust, one of the things I say is um, I ask people, I tell them that uh, I forgot my wallet at home. I don't have money. I need to get my car out of the garage and I need to pay. I need $20 to pay in the garage, to pay to get my car out of the garage. And who here is willing to lend me $20? Who here is willing to lend me $20? And... Typically, when I ask about $20, all hands uh, are raised, and, and I like to think that half the people are willing to lend me $20, and the other half uh, don't want the first half to think that they're not. But typically, you'd get a lot of hands up. How does that work? Well, think about what's going through their head. By the way, they don't know me. Most of them don't know me. Uh, and uh, when they raise their hand, the first thing that they consider is, what are the potential negative consequences? So what is the risk? Potential negative consequences. And by the way, I, I promise that I, I don't ask them to give me $20. I ask them to lend me $20. And I promise that when I get home, I'm going to put $20 in an envelope, put their address and uh, and put a stamp and, and mail it to them so they'll get it back. So essentially, I'm, I'm not borrowing. I'm not uh, asking for a grant for, for them to give me $20. I'm asking to borrow. If I ask them to give it to me, then, uh, you know, it's it's really a, a transaction that's done. And uh, there's nothing beyond that uh, after that. And um, so what are the negative consequences? Negative consequences is that I'm not going to uh, give them the $20 back. So they would be losing $20. For some people, uh, they're more afraid of losing $20 than for others. So there's a different level of fear. But what I do is I'm asking them to give me control over the, the future of those $20. By the way, you have to ask yourself, what, what's the reward? 
Uh, I mean, if they're getting the $20 back, what's the reward? I mean, there's like at the end, they're exactly where they started. So there, there is no real reward or is there? Well, it's the fact that they feel good. It's the fact that they helped me. It's the fact that others see that they helped me. Those actually are rewards, which would be why they're giving it to me. And and I know I'm I'm getting into this philosophical debate of uh, when we do good things, do we do them? Uh, are we completely considering other people's uh, feelings and, and not ourselves? Or are we doing it so that we can feel good about ourselves? Not going to go there. But there is a reward when you give me the $20 and, and I return it back, even though you end up where you started. But I'm you're giving me control over those uh, $20. And, you know, first there's the translation of uh, the negative consequences are you're not going to see $20 again. Uh, the, that's the, the objective risk. Your fear really depends on uh, how much you care about money in general, how much money do you have? So what does $20 represent to you? Uh, and the trust uh, that needs to compensate, you're looking at me, you don't trust me very much. I mean, you you barely saw me. Uh, maybe you trust me a little because you know that somebody you do trust brought me in and paid me to talk to you because they trust me. And so there is some level of trust that was established due to, to the fifth law of trust, which is trust is transferable. But And this is enough to compensate for the fear that you have of uh, the negative consequences of losing $20. So you feel safe and you raise your hand. And then I ask about $100 and obviously not too many hands. And I ask about $1,000. And when somebody still ha has their hand up at $1,000, I can pretty much guarantee that it's somebody that knows me and has known me for a long period of time. And they know that I'm good for it, that I'm going to pay it back. So the risk is actually significant. The objective risk is significantly higher. It's $1,000 compared to 20. The fear is relative. It depends on what you feel about losing $1,000. But obviously, it's going to be higher still than uh, what you're going to feel about losing $20. But there is a higher level of, risk that, uh, of trust that you have in me because of, well, the amount of time that we have together and a lot of things that I'm not going to go into the six-component model. But it, again, is enough for you to feel safe. Uh, you give control over something else. Sometimes it's giving control over your life. You know, when you serve in, a, uh, in an infantry unit and pretty much every military unit, you give control over your life to somebody else. Uh, when you go and fly a fighter jet and, uh, you know, you really only trust yourself. No, you don't. You trust the manufacturer, you trust the different components, you trust the people who maintain this plane, the people who built this plane, you trust God. You do give control over your life to another person. And this is why I say the trust is also about giving control. It's giving control over something. Because without doing that, uh, you're not really trusting anybody else or even yourself if, if we include that as one of the four entities. So that takes me again to who do you trust? And I already kind of told you a couple of times or more uh, that uh, I, I categorize who we trust into four categories. It's, it's myself, it's other people, it's other things, 
And, and by things, typically I do refer to people, but it's people that I don't know through things that they made or maintained. And then I trust God. Uh, you know, there's this story that, that I'll tell you that I, I told in the Book of Trust. Uh, it's, it's kind of a folk story. Uh, there was a flood and the waters were rising and there was this very religious man who uh, saw that the water were rising and uh, he listened to the radio and the radio said, listen, the, the water is rising, uh, leave your house, go to safety. But he thought, no, I trust God, I believe in God, God will take care of me, I'm going to stay. The water kept on rising. He started going up to the second floor and then he got on, on the roof and he stood on the roof. And then a, uh, the neighbor came by with, uh, with a little boat, uh, went by the, the roof and he said, hey, man, jump on my boat and, and I'll take you to safety. But the religious man said, uh, no, I, I trust God. I believe in God. God will take care of me. God would not let me die. I'm going to stay here. Neighbor says, fine, and goes away. Then a police helicopter uh, comes over and they see him on the roof. The water keeps on rising. He's, uh, you know, he's starting to be covered in water and he's just, his head is up there. And the police throws down a rope ladder and they say, get on the rope ladder and then we'll take you to safety. But the religious man says, no, I, I trust God. I believe in God. God will take care of me. God would not let me drown. Uh, I'll stay here. And so the police helicopter flies away. Water keeps on rising and he drowns. And as soon as he goes up to heaven, uh, he first asks, so he demands an audience with God. And when he sees God, he says, God, I trusted you. I believed in you. How did you let me die? And God said, I sent you a radio report. I sent you a neighbor with a boat. I sent you a police helicopter with a rope ladder. What else do you want? So we trust God, we trust other people, we trust things, and we trust ourselves. How do we decide how much to attribute this? And, and by the way, it's almost never 100% on each thing. 100% is in total. Uh, there is a certain percentage, you know, when I go on a plane and, and I fly as a pilot, I, I trust myself as a pilot. That's a certain percentage. I trust other people, the people who uh, made the plane, the people who uh, maintained this plane. And you know what? There is a certain percentage of trust that I have in God, that God would not let me uh, crash this plane. And the level of trust that I have or the distribution of trust among the different entities depends on my trustability. Remember the eight law of trust? The Eight Law of Trust says that the level of trust that I have in you or, or anyone is the product of my trustability, my willingness to trust your kind. I'm going to say your kind in general and your tr specific trustworthiness in particular. When I say your kind, your kind can be people in general. It could be uh, aircraft mechanics. It could be aircraft manufacturer, manufacturing employees, whatever. So sometimes it's my trustability in that category of people. And that's how I determine how to uh, break down, how to distribute the 100% the of trust that I need in order to compensate for that fear of the objective risk so that I will feel safe and not in danger.
there is one more component that I wanted to make sure that, that I did uh, convey to you, and that is that we trust people, that the trust that we have in them, we there is an expectation. And the expectation is actually made of two parts. One is that they have the willingness, the intention to minimize, to prevent those negative consequences that we're afraid of. And two, that they have the capability, the ability to prevent those negative consequences. Doesn't matter how much uh, how much they're willing to to do their best. Their best might not be enough. They don't know how to do that. You know, if if I'm going to trust one of my daughters to fly the plane, it doesn't matter that they have the right state of mind, that they have the willingness, that they really want to be able to fly the plane to to fly that plane. They don't have the capability. And and the flip side is they may have the capability but they don't have the willingness. They don't want to prevent the negative consequences. And those are the two things that allow us to decide whether we trust one person or not. There is a part from the movie Shrek that, that I really like. Uh, and that's when I think it's the first uh, Shrek movie. The Shrek and Donkey are both held uh, upside down in this dungeon. And uh, Donkey is all upset about it. And he starts yelling, what about my Miranda rights? You're supposed to say you have the right to remain silent. Nobody said I have the right to remain silent. And Shrek says, Donkey, you do have the right to remain silent. What you lack is the capacity. So when we decide that we trust somebody, it's based on their willingness to prevent, their intention to prevent the negative consequences that we might suffer and their capability to prevent that. Are you ready for the definition? So I took you through everything uh, that really constitutes what I believe trust is. Uh, I told you that trust is first, it's about reward, because without a reward, an expected reward, you're not going to be willing to take potential risk. Risk is about potential negative consequences. We really care about the fear more than the risk, and the fear is our translation of that objective risk. So fear is subjective, risk is objective, and therefore fear is more relative than, than risk is. I talked about the fact that trust balances fear. We need to trust something, someone, God, ourselves uh, to balance the fear because when we trust more than we're afraid, more than we experience fear, then we feel safe and we must feel safe. And if we trust less than we fear, then we feel danger and we don't like feeling danger. So trust, we need to trust in order to compensate for the fear, which is the translation of the objective risk. And then finally, when we trust, we give control. We give control over something that we have and that takes us, and by the way, there is this expectation that the other entity is going to do their best to, um, to prevent those negative consequences. And I should have said that in the last uh, segment, that my decision, how I distribute it, it depends on my expectation that they can and will uh, be able to compensate for that risk for that fear. And putting it all together, my definition of trust is trust is your willingness to accept 
the potential negative consequences of giving control over something you have to another, expecting them to be capable and willing to minimize those negative consequences. So their intent is important, their willingness, their ability is important, they're capable to minimize the negative consequences that are really the risk that I'm taking as it translated to fear. And I need to trust you more than I'm afraid of that risk so I feel safe rather than feel in danger. I'm going to say it one more time, one last time. Trust is your willingness to accept the potential negative consequences of giving control over something you have to another, expecting them to be capable and willing to minimize those negative consequences. I hope my perspective of what trust is was interesting to you. Thank you for listening. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll answer it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. If you like this episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get notified when I release a new episode. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings help not only you, but also others looking for podcasts just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my workshops, online courses, books, or go to my website, trusthabits.com. And remember that the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening or watching The Trust Show.